Welcome to the Big Green Politics Podcast. We've got a different kind of episode for you today. The past couple of years have seen an increased awareness of the growing impact of Facebook and other social media on our democracies and on politics. Revelations in the UK have lifted the lid on how Facebook sold its users' data to companies such as Cambridge Analytica that were then paid to micro-target political messages to specific users. This was used in the EU referendum in 2016 and in Trump's election campaign that same year in the US. We've spoken on the podcast about the increasing power of Facebook in political campaigns, especially for politicians on the far right, such as Matteo Salvini in Italy or Tommy Robinson in the UK. This is another way in which Facebook is disrupting democracy. In light of this, Green UK MEP Molly Scott Cato has commissioned a report about Facebook, its impact on democracy, and how to protect democracies from disinformation and manipulation. The report is called Facing Down Facebook, and it documents the ways in which Facebook has been involved in abuses of personal data for political purposes and the manipulation of electoral outcomes. The report concludes that social media platforms such as Facebook cannot be trusted to regulate themselves and makes some key policy recommendations. And it was launched in London on the 4th of March. Molly Scott Cato kindly let us share an edited version of the London launch here. Enjoy. I personally think this is the most important issue facing us, and that's why I wanted to organise this event. And I'm really delighted to say that we have the dream panel today. So essentially what we've tried to do with this report is summarise the vast amount of information about what Facebook's been up to into a short number of words. Because I think if more people had grasped what was going on, concern would be even more widespread than it is. And so, you know, there's been inquiries in the Canadian Parliament, in the US Senate, in our European Parliament, and also here in, in the British Parliament. And essentially what Tom's tried to do is to summarise all of that and then to come up with some recommendations for change. And obviously Damien Collins, Culture, Media and Sport Committee, also came forward with some, some suggestions for legal changes that we need to protect our democracy. So all I'm going to do is introduce you to the panel very briefly and then hand over to them. Carol, who's here, has done absolutely amazing work protecting our democracy and revealing the sort of dirty dealings that have gone behind both the Brexit vote and a lot of other votes as well. For that work, she's won the Foreign Press Association Media Award and the Orwell Prize and she's been a, an absolutely fearless advocate for democracy. Damien Collins is a, the politician who's had the courage to challenge the most powerful corporation in the world and to demand that it should be subject to political oversight and control. And as I said, a couple of weeks ago, he produced the final report, Disrupting Democracy, which included vital proposals to protect our democracy. Shamir Sani, who has again been a very brave whistleblower in terms of what was happening on inside vote leave and how social media was used to distort the referendum campaign. And he also put his own life on the line to blow the whistle in this way. So I think it shows great courage in protecting democracy. In fact, I think all our panellists have shown that, in fact. Tom Scott is a citizen scientist from Cornwall. Do you like that? Uh, yeah, great. I've never been called that before. <laughs> 
he teaches at Falmouth University, so he's the author of the poem. He will be presenting it very briefly to you. I think it's important to say at the beginning that we have a, a cross-party panel here because this is not a left-right issue. And it's also important to say that Shamir was working for Britain to leave the EU. He's a long-standing Eurosceptic. So this is not a pro- or anti-Brexit issue. This is an issue about protecting our democracy. And that's why I think it's crucial that we all commit to doing that because it's our democracy and it needs us all to stand by and fight for it right now. So that's enough for me to say. Just hand over to Tom who's got uh, 10 minutes. Thanks Molly. Citizen researcher I like. Also a kind of academic but I should say immediately that this isn't an academic report. Uh, It draws on previously published information all in the public domain Uh, Much of it thanks to the brilliant work of Carol and other journalists like her and the DCMS committee. And essentially what we've done is to pull this wealth of publicly available information together and put it into the context of Facebook's history. And I hope it's obvious that the subject of this report is very far from being academic. So it summarises and builds on the excellent work of the DCMS committee, also of other parliamentary committees in Canada and the European Parliament as well, and work of the Information Commissioner's Office who published an excellent report and fined Facebook £500,000, the maximum possible fine, uh, a few months ago. And although the report does give a full history of Facebook to give some kind of context for recent events, almost every day uh, new news emerges. And so it's very far from being comprehensive in that way as well. And despite the best efforts of the DCMS committee and of Carol and other journalists, we still don't know the full extent of the ways in which Facebook data was used to target disinformation and misleading advertising on voters in the UK in 2016. But it's clear that this took place on an extremely large scale. And please don't imagine it's not still happening. It is very much still happening as we speak. As the DCMS committee has described, in 2016, both ends of the Leave campaign were pumping industrial volumes of disinformation at people here using the Canadian company AIQ to uh, devise, to test and to target these ads, Facebook ads, for this purpose. We've only illustrated one of these so-called dark ads in our report, and it carried the completely false message, the EU stops us from protecting polar bears. But there were literally hundreds of thousands of other such ads, each one calibrated to appeal to a particular identified susceptibility of a narrow target audience selected using Facebook data. And uh, one of the characteristics which was used to target people, uh, we know, and which was developed by Alexander Kogan, who passed his work on to Cambridge Analytica, was uh, low intelligence. It's by far from the only one. There are many areas of this story that are still murky, but what is clear is that it's almost inconceivable that this volume of disinformation didn't have a significant impact on voting patterns in the Brexit referendum. So what we have here is the most important vote in the UK since 1945, almost certainly critically impacted by disinformation, by wholesale data abuses, all of this facilitated by Facebook and all taking place under the radar of the regulator, the electoral regulator. And we know that the UK is very far from being the only country in which this has happened. So that's really the starting point for this report. How has this happened? How has it been allowed to happen? And how can we stop it from happening again? And answering those questions really meant looking at the whole way in which Facebook's business model operates, how it's come to occupy what's effectively a monopoly position in the social media sphere. 
And I hope that the history section of the report does that quite effectively and brings out the many ways in which Facebook has misled or simply lied to regulators and to the public about the abuses of data that it's enabled. So what can be done, just skipping very quickly forward to the recommendations bit of our report, many of our proposals uh, align very closely with those of the excellent DCMS committee report, and, and we completely agree that Facebook needs to be held accountable for the information or disinformation that its algorithms channel towards users in the same kind of way as a publisher is held accountable. We also fully agree on the need for far greater transparency and user control over political advertising. Facebook has made some efforts in this direction, but these are absolutely not sufficient. And there's plenty of evidence that the same forces that were deluging voters, Facebook users, with disinformation in 2016 are starting to do that again this time to promote the hardest possible Brexit. It's not clear who's paying for these ads, and Facebook's recently introduced system of registration for political advertising doesn't go nearly far enough in terms of transparency. And there are a few areas in which we think the DCMS report recommendations perhaps don't go quite far enough. One is the role of the EU. It's absolutely clear that GDBR represents by far the most effective effort yet to curb abuses of personal data. And it's particularly urgent, I think, to recognise this now as Britain teeters on the edge of Brexit. A no-deal Brexit throws uh, the UK's position in relation to GDPR into question. And although the UK government has said that it intends to stay aligned to GDPR, in the immediate term, it hasn't given any long-term commitment to do this. And I think the fact that Facebook operates across multiple jurisdictions is one reason why we stress the crucial need for international alignment on regulation. We think GDPR should be used as a model, not just by the UK, but by any country looking at better regulation of Facebook and other tech giants. This would make it far easier to hold these companies to account across borders. And as we all know, data crosses borders with extreme ease and speed. And it's already clear that Facebook's data processing is gravitating towards countries with the uh, lowest level of regulation. Like us, the DCMS report discusses the need for a code of practice for social media companies. And we see the code of practice on disinformation that the EU is currently developing uh, in discussion with the tech giants as a very important first step in this direction. But at present, this is essentially a self-regulatory code. And it's worded in a way that makes adherence to it voluntary and desirable rather than necessary. We think it should be absolutely compulsory and that the code needs to be much more tightly worded and it should be a legal requirement for social media firms with heavy penalties for any breaches. It could also be used, like GDPR, as the basis for regulation in other countries outside the EU and it could be adherence to this code becomes a prerequisite of such companies' license to operate. One particular area we think the code needs to be tightened up is on identity verification and automated posts by non-human agents, by bots. Opaque, fake identities make it extremely hard to tackle disinformation online. And although Facebook claims to be making efforts in this direction, it's definitely not 
gone far enough. Uh, we are recommending that identity verification be required for all user accounts and that any organizational pages, very importantly, should be linked to named and legally founded organizations or associations with responsible named people behind them. Another key area that I'd highlight relates to Facebook's basic business model, its kind of monopoly position. And the report makes clear, I hope, that Facebook has routinely treated its users as, to use a term that Facebook executives have used themselves in the past, as inventory. In other words, as commodities to be packaged up and sold to the highest bidder. And this, to us, is the core of the problem. Users of Facebook create the vast majority of the company's value, and we think they need to be treated with far more respect as core stakeholders. And we think that any international code of practice needs to specify that users are represented both in the ownership of the company and at board level. At the very least, we think that users should have a board-level representative chosen by users themselves to ensure that their interests are treated with respect. And finally, one last point, I'd just like to emphasize that despite all of the abuses that we've described in this report and that Damien's committee has described, we don't see social media as an unmitigated evil. In fact, it could and it should be a powerful force for good. And there are some examples of how this can potentially happen. The best known probably is Wikipedia, the Wikimedia Foundation. And that's done a huge amount to make information reliably, freely available without making anyone a multi-billionaire. We believe there needs to be a concerted effort to support the development of more truly social media and that this is one very good use to which money raised from fines and levies on the tech giants like Facebook could be put. One phrase that's often cropped up uh, in the evidence given by expert witnesses to Damien's committee and to the other committees which we uh, summarise in the report is the phrase information ecosystem. And as Greens, of course, we're very interested in ecosystems and there's no doubt in our minds that Facebook is, to use that analogy, a major polluter. We think the polluter pays principle should apply to Facebook and that so far it's got off pretty much scot-free. But we also think that we need to be looking at new and less polluting ways of providing social media services and we hope that this report gives some pointers towards how that could be done. Thank you. So I'd like to welcome Damien Collins. Well, thank you for inviting me to, to join you this morning and uh, to respond to the excellent report that's been published. There are a lot of areas of common ground with the Select Committee report, but it, it's great that others are looking at the same issues as well. And one of the things that has really brought home to me throughout the inquiry that we've run is how important it is to have good collaboration with other bodies in other countries and other jurisdictions that are looking at sim similar issues because the businesses are global businesses. It doesn't mean that all the responses have to be global, but we benefit enormously from understanding some of the same issues that people in other parliaments, other jurisdictions are looking at as well, and learning from uh, the experiences, not just of what, what's going on within those countries, but also the experiences of those bodies in dealing with the tech companies. It really pleased me to see at some point uh, during the last year, members of parliament in another country questioning Facebook based on evidence they're given to our inquiry. Know, and challenging them in that way, which is not what they expected, I think. So it was a good way of building up a, a wealth of knowledge. And we've been you know, helped enormously as well by people who've been prepared to speak out, you know, whistleblowers, you know, Fort Worth with us today, you know, people who have um, been able to sort of break this sort of code of silence that exists around many of these issues as well. 
Uh, many of these big companies do rely on the fact that you know, we don't know really very much about their internal workings. Um, and to have people that come forward and actually produce insights and documents based on the work they've done has been enormously helpful. And I think over the last 18 months or so, we've got ourselves in a position where I think we understand the issues far better. We understand that what we should be challenging the tech companies on far better than we do. And that, for me, should lay the groundwork this year for what I hope will be a year of action rather than a year, year of inquiry. And I think this report you know, comes up with some very helpful ideas and suggestions for that. I just wanted to pick up on one or two things uh, that you mentioned. Firstly, with regards to GDPR, I, I think GDPR is enormously important. Um, it really struck me that actually people in America looking at these issues, uh, I think, take the EU area very seriously and the GDPR rules very seriously. A lot of these issues are things that the people in America would find difficult to legislate on and move forward, but there is an interest as to whether European standards will end up becoming sort of global standards and the norms that people expect in terms of establishing their data rights. So I think that is incredibly important. And what I do often is say to Americans as well, we get, we get the challenge on you know, impingement of freedom of speech, we want the tech companies to do more uh, to act against harmful content. Um, I do remind them that you know, Europe has a series of fun, you know, functioning democracies, even though we don't have the First Amendment. You know, and, and I think we still have free speech and we still have a, a free and open society, but we, you know, but we do have rules and standards that we expect people to maintain. I think we have a, you know, people may not always agree with the news they see from our broadcasters, but I don't think people would deny that we you know, live in a country with free speech, but we still live in a country where there is broadcasting code based on statutory you know, guidance overseen by an independent regulator and I see no way, no reason why companies like Facebook shouldn't have to adhere to the same principles. And I think when looking at the role of individuals and their freedom of expression and speech, um, it was put to me very well uh, last week at a conference I went to, uh, that people, you know, sh people could expect freedom of speech but they shouldn't necessarily expect freedom of reach. That the ability to actually relentlessly target people with disinformation and messages of hate, abusing and using the systems that have been created by social media companies shouldn't be a right. That, pe that people have, uh, even, even if they have a right to express their own ideas. There were some things in our, in our report that I think there are some question marks over the application of GDPR to social media of companies like Facebook that are important, particularly around the way data is gathered about, about individuals, because the sort of jargon we use in our report for this is inferred data. Under GDPR, there are a series of protected data characteristics your political opinions, your religious beliefs, your sexual orientation. Um, and people choose not to declare that when they set up a Facebook profile. Uh, but nevertheless, Facebook can guess what those are and sell that information to an advertiser through its lookalike audience function as well. And I think the information commissioner has rightly questioned the legality of that. And I think that is an area of challenge to companies like Facebook to say the sort of technology that's been devised to help sell us a pair of trainers might not necessarily be the right sort of technology to be used in, in, in spreading political ideas through democracy and those, those ideas can be so easily abused. There is, so there is a, I think a duty of care that companies like Facebook have on content and that was one of the central to our recommendations and I think the workings of this, this report as well that where there is clearly content that's illegal that should clearly be removed but I think the areas of harmful content goes beyond simply what is legal and illegal and this is where in particular the Americans sort of get, start to get, get into some difficulties in understanding this. Things like cyberbullying are bad and shouldn't be there. They can have real-world harmful consequences, particularly on young and vulnerable people that experience it. And it's not unreasonable that we should expect the tech companies to enforce some standards to act against accounts that are engaged in relentless campaigns of cyberbullying. There are relentless campaigns of disinformation, foreign states and actors running disinformation campaigns, extremist political organisations running disinformation campaigns. Any one of those individual acts might not necessarily be illegal in terms of what they're saying, but it's harmful. And I think to say to the tech companies, we should require you to act against 
known sources, I think is a really important step we should take. I think the idea of you know, people who are influenced, persuaded by things that they see is not a new idea, but it can be exploited to a much greater scale, much more effectively. And I think the concern that I had during the inquiry is where someone could put a poster up on the side of the road. People might be influenced by that, but everyone can see it, and everyone knows to put the poster there. But when you're seeing personalised information that no one else can see, it's been designed for you based on a psychological profile of you, of understanding of what it is that makes you frightened, uh, and you don't know who's doing it. For me, that is a very different thing. And, and that's why it's so important that citizens have the tools they need to be able to understand why they're receiving the information they're receiving, why they're being targeted with it, and who's doing it. Because then that's very important for someone to make their own mind up as to whether they trust that source of information or not. And I think uh, that's one of the areas where we need more rights. Now, we can do that ourselves through legislation. We can. There's no reason why we can't amend our electoral laws in this country to make sure they're fit for the, for the digital age, which they're not. They're largely, they were largely written, but they weren't really written for a pre-internet world, but they're the pre-social media world. Uh, and we can, within our own jurisdiction, do that in the same way that you know, we've given the Information Commissioner the power not only just to, to levy very large fines for data breaches, which the GDPR rules give, but actually to go further than that and give, give the Information Commissioner the right to go in and seize data and information as part of investigations, not just to ask for it, you know, or let the company get away with paying a fine rather than releasing it. And I think these sorts of enforcement powers are normal in other, other industries. And, don't often pray and aid the banking sector, but one of the things we challenge Facebook on with this, which I think is right, is that you know, financial services are complex, international, businesses located in different jurisdictions, but there are rules and responsibilities. And one of them is if a bank sees evidence of fraudulent activity or believes someone is money laundering through the bank, if they don't report it to the authorities, they could lose their license. There is no such obligation on the tech companies. Facebook you know, were not required to report suspicious Russian activity on Facebook to the authorities. Their position was if someone sees it and tells us about it, we'll cooperate with an investigation, but it's not our duty to proactively report it. I think, again, that's somewhere where we could change the law as well and put that responsibility onto the companies. I don't believe that, again, and this is where I would, I would sort of think we need more than the current EU, EU levels. I mean, the EU directive gives powers for takedown on content that's illegal, but as I said, I think, I think some of these issues are slightly wider than that. I think it has to be a statutory code. It can't be a voluntary one. We can't rely on the tech companies policing themselves. One of the real problems we've, we've run into is that there's no real power of inspection inside, inside Facebook. If we get a Facebook with a problem, we are largely reliant on them to solve it, um, and we have largely have to take their word for it that they have done so. We don't really have the power to go in and check, see whether they've really done it or not. When we raise some of these issues as well, you know, when we talk about organisations like the mainstream network running campaigns to get people to lobby their MPs to vote against a, a Brexit deal, and we still don't know who's who's running those campaigns. We still don't have that information publicly. Um, although I understand the Information Commissioner has now received that information from Facebook. So the thing on data, the thing that I was always told during the um, inquiry was, whenever you throw questions back to the tech companies about can you do this in terms of data transparency or data targeting or data profiling, and they tell you it's difficult. The flip side of it is it's not difficult at all if you want to, if you want to buy advertising from them. You know, the LA Times had this investigation last week where they, they bought um, advertising categories on Facebook based around people who had an interest in, in high-ranking Nazis. So you could buy an advertising target group of people who had an interest in Joseph Goebbels. You know? Now, that is just totally irresponsible. You think of the sort of people you might be targeting and what you could target them with. But on the flip side, if we said to them, could we do something to identify vulnerable people that might be engaging with harmful content and that could lead to some sort of tragedy? probably say that's very difficult. But if I went along to them and said, I'm a publisher and I've got a self-help book and I want to, I want to target at teenage yeah. boys, there's an ad category, there'll be an ad category for that. You know, So mm. I think that's where we need to challenge them. They can they could do it to sell ads, so why, why can't they do it to help people? But things like this are sort of fundamental to our democracy, to understand the way things work. Facebook holds this information 
and we should have regulators that can go in and get it and check it. For me, the, the lesson of the last year is that those, those powers have to be on a statutory basis. I think it would be great if we, can all work, if we can work to common European standards. I think it gives us more weight. But if, even if it takes us time to get to that level, it shouldn't mean we do nothing. Often the tech companies throw about this challenge saying, you know, it needs to be global standards, we can't have a balkanised system. Yes, it would be better, but we shouldn't make the sort of perfect the enemy of the good. And if we have to start with our own national jurisdiction making progress, then we, sh- we can and we should. Uh, and that's what I want to see this year. And our recommendations, so, so, so much of which tied with what's in this report, you know, we, we want the government to respond to that. We'll have that response later this month. Uh, I hope in the form of the government white paper, which will be published then, we'll see a pathway towards you know, new legislation in this country that will, will address some of the balance of power favour of the citizen and against the, the tech platforms over which we really have very little influence. Can I ask you to show your appreciation of the excellent work and the courage and commitment? <laughs> so now I'm going to pass on to another hero of our times, Carol Fedwalder, who will just say a few words about her work and her response to the report. So thank you so much for having this event today. It's so vital to have attention thrown upon this subject, and it's so vital to have it in Parliament. So I'm kind of thrilled that you're holding this. And it's been very frustrating at times that even though that we have managed to produce sort of stories and so on, it's Shamir's story, as we know, last year, which, you know, enormous personal sacrifice that he gave to get this information out... And we still see the way that actually nothing has sort of, you know, there's still, that's still managed to be ignored. And it's sort of like the elephant in the room, really. So, and, and again, with Damien's report last week, the publication of that was so vital. It was such a huge amount of work that had gone into it. And I just loved it when I woke up on Monday morning and it was across <laughs> the news cycle. And then two hours later, it was kind of bumped off. So I just think it's so important that we keep trying to find different ways of, of sort of keeping this in the news. One of the things that was really interesting, you know, that you talked about there, you said that we still don't know what happened in the referendum. And I just think it's really important that, again, we just keep banging that drum. Because why should we allow Facebook to get away with that? Why? They've got the answers. They're just refusing to give them to us. And I just really don't think that's acceptable. And um, I'm much more hardline, actually, than your reports. And my, my view is that this is a foreign company which has played a pivotal role in our elections and it is unaccountable to Parliament so as far as I'm concerned, it should be banned from future use until it sends its representatives here and gives us the evidence and the answers that we need. I love your thing, though, of it, it's the idea of it being a big polluter. I think that's a really helpful way to look at it. And I think also to think of that these technology companies do work and operate and act in the same way as the big multinationals and the way that we've seen them sort of act across the world. And you really, as a journalist, you really, when you see the ways that they try and shut down your stories and the aggressive PR moves that they use against it, that becomes really clear. The, the story that we did in the Observer at the weekend, which was about the, this incredible global lobbying operation that Facebook has had going for years and essentially has had sort of politicians and legislators in its pocket and has used this sort of combination of threats and promises to keep 
all these different countries across the world in line. I do think we're still only scratching the surface of what's going on. And again, the thing I think you, you know you talked about mainstream network there. It's just astonishing to me that we're still in this situation now that this this incredibly important live political issue, vital to our country's future, and it is being influenced by actors and by organisations and money. And we have no idea who these people are. We don't know if they're British. We don't know where that money's coming from. But these adverts are out there every single day on social media. And there was an article which we ran in the Observer in the summer by a Swiss journalist, Hannes Grassedger, who is one of the sort of pioneers of actually writing about Kenja Analytica. And he wrote about the use of this button on Facebook, I Voted. I don't know if you've seen that, if any of you are on Facebook, but on they rolled it out in certain elections in certain countries, but not in others. And we know that that impacts voting behaviour. So we know that turns out a higher percentage of the electorate. So was that used in the referendum? Does that correlate with who saw which advertisements, with who was in which network? Facebook would have that information, for example. But we don't have it. Again. Do you mean they could just put that on the profiles of people who they thought supported leaving? Damien is just so right in that we can amend our electoral laws, and the report was very powerful on that. It said, absolutely, our electoral laws are not fit for purpose. They do not work. Our democracy doesn't actually work at the moment. But there has been no response whatsoever from the government to that. So we're we're saying that as a country, we're completely fine with that, completely fine with the fact that we know that we cannot have a free and fair election anymore. The government knows that, and it's done absolutely nothing about it, even as we sit here discussing when we're going to have the next general election or if there is going to be a second referendum. So the complete sort of insularity of political debate at the moment is terrifying, I think, that the way that the sort of Westminster Brexit political questions are taking up all oxygen and these bigger, more vital questions are being completely ignored. I do hope that one day we will look back upon this era and think that, you know, we were sort of sleepwalking and we will look back upon this as this terrible time which we managed to you know, eventually legislate and protect ourselves from. Because at the moment, I do just feel we're incredibly vulnerable and we can only see, you know, all, we, we only see the very tip of the iceberg and, and that is sort of horrifically scary enough. It was interesting to hear you say we should, just shouldn't allow Facebook to operate because when I started this meeting, when I said this meeting was happening, quite a lot of people said, oh, Facebook's too powerful, there's nothing you can do about that, which I find quite extraordinary. I mean, we are running this country and we do have the power to stop Facebook should we wish to. Whether we wish to is, is, is a subject of debate. Thank you so much, Kelly. I'm surrounded by heroes this morning. It's a nice place to be. So moving on to, to our last speaker, Shamir Sani, who's going to explain from the perspective of a whistleblower and respond to the report. So um, my experience with Facebook in particular is first and foremost as a user. I started using Facebook when I was 12, I think, 13, something. And I've had my whole life on Facebook. It's quite, it is as valuable to me as 
as, as some of my most important possessions, you know, the wallet that my grandfather gave me, these sort of things. Like my information on Facebook and the pictures I have posted on there from when I was 12 hanging out with my family to the conversations and interactions I've had with my own family members and friends on it are an integral part of, my, of who I am. It's my history. It's, my, it's not just my history, it's my identity. I've put myself online, on Facebook. And so I think there needs to be a drastic shift in the way that people look at what social media and Facebook are. A lot of the sort of attacks that people have against, for example, Damien's work or the work that we're doing against corporations like Facebook is, oh, well, it's a business. Oh, that they should be allowed to do this because you've decided to use their service. But I think people need to remind themselves that like slavery, like the sex trade, Facebook's product is us, is our identity, is who we are. Any time you have a company that uses you as a human being to sell some, to, to, to sell you to advertisers, then you come across with a lot of problems. And I think there needs to be a cultural shift in how we talk about organizations like Facebook. Facebook in particular, because Facebook's response to everything that's gone on over the last year is telling of the culture within Silicon Valley of how you don't, you, you people don't understand our vision. You people can't understand what we're what we're trying to do with Facebook. We're trying to make it into like a as integral as water or electricity. But it already is as integral as water and electricity, which is why, just like water and electricity, you need regulation. You need to view it as something that is is our right, not Facebook's. Well, if you look at Pakistan, we shut down YouTube. They shut down YouTube all the time. They literally just shut it down. Like no one can like like they shut it down if there's like content that is stirring up tribal wars or political violence. Yeah. And this is another point that I did want to make was actually that the impact of Facebook over here is not nowhere near as bad as what is happening in places like Nigeria, Pakistan, yeah. and India. People are literally dying. Like hundreds of people are literally being murdered because Facebook doesn't regulate the content that's coming out of it. And people, I guess the responsibility of people, no, it's not. It's the responsibility of the platform. But if you're shutting down Facebook, you have to shut down Instagram. You have to shut down... And every there's so, there's so much software out there, like, for example, Tinder, that uses Facebook to, to work. And the sort of integration of Facebook within all of our... within our lives in every aspect, even LinkedIn, like our jobs, love, our entire lifestyles, is, is shutting that down is, is, I think, or pausing that is... It's a, huge, it's a huge task that I think is virtually impossible. So I think the only, the only action to take is to have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg come here and like uh, really sort of be all of fa these entities like Facebook be held accountable by the authorities. They need regulation. There's no other way about it. They're not companies. They're not businesses. They are managing our identities. Mm. I use, like I can show you on my phone. It's really embarrassing. I shouldn't say this. I, I could spend like easily 12, 13 hours on my phone and not that like six hours on Instagram. Like every day, like almost. <laughs> so it is, it is a vital and integral part of my life. And I think the conversations that journalists and the media have around Facebook is treating it as if we're, uh, as if it's like Chanel or H&M. It's a product that we, that we use. Facebook is our right. Social media is our right. Being able to communicate with our family and apply for jobs like on LinkedIn, even fall in love like Tinder or Match.com. These are... It, these are integral parts of our lifestyle now, and I think people need to stop viewing Facebook uh, and what it is as, as a business and a service we use and, and as something as, as someone or a company that uses us. The way that we look at organizations like Facebook needs to revert back to that we are the product. And so we need to have our, we need to 
sort of take back control of <laughs> our identities and our data. Sorry for using that. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for participating in the meeting. If you're in this room, that means that you're already committed to defending democracy. I think there are many thousands of people that didn't come into this room who also feel that way. But can I ask you to go away and recommit to that? Because it's our democracy. If we don't defend it, we won't have it. One of the things that I found most sad, in a way, during the referendum campaign was the people who said, oh, I'm going to vote for Brexit because I've got nothing to lose. How wrong can you be? We have all our civil demo and democratic rights to lose, and we could be losing them a great deal more. So thank you for coming. Thank you for playing your part in defending democracy. And lastly, I mean, I always end on a note of hope, even when it's quite difficult. The way I think about this is, if you imagine living at the sort of beginning of the uh, 19th century, the Industrial Revolution had come along, there were massive changes in technology, you were dislocated, you'd moved off the land, you'd probably lost connection with your church and your family. Massive social change. But over time, we banded together, we formed trade unions and friendly societies, we transformed democracy, we fought for the vote, and we gained ourselves the power to have control over that system so that it benefited us. And that's what we have to do in the digital space as well. And we have human ingenuity and creativity and commitment on our side, so I'm confident we can do that. Thank you for being here today. Thank you.